The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is a prepaid call from Melanie McGuire, an inmate at Edna Mayen Correctional Facility. This call will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, press 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. My husband was Bill McGuire. Uh, on April 23rd, 2007, I was convicted of the murder and dismemberment of my husband. And I was sentenced to life in prison plus five years. On Direct Appeal, we examine the murder conviction of Melanie McGuire following a highly publicized trial. Looking at the evidence that was presented and the evidence that may have seemed insignificant at the time, we form our own conclusion about Melanie's guilt. I know when I should have left. She would never do this, but I think she knows something. Am I telling them I'm having an affair? Nobody's asking. He owed money out on the street, and that's how you get shot here and here. It's unlikely that her pistol was used in this crime. It's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about a notch in your belt. Searches that include how to kill your wife, how to poison your wife. They had bags that contain victims' parts. Prosecutor is fierce. You will be taking stand, literally, live on court TV. I expected the worst, and what I got was one step shot of the worst. You don't have to believe me. Seek the answers yourself. Look for the documents. Look for the paperwork. This stuff exists. It all began with three suitcases. On May 5th, 2004, a suitcase was found floating in the Chesapeake Bay by a local fisherman and his son. John Runge from the Virginia Police Department responded to the call. And when he opened the suitcase, he saw black trash bags. Inside, a pair of human legs from the knees down. Five days later, a second suitcase surfaced. And inside was the torso of a white male with the head and arms still attached. When a third suitcase surfaced in the bay on May 16th, sure enough, it contained human thighs and a pelvis on May 21st, the Virginia police released a composite sketch of the victim's face. They quickly received a call from John and Sue Rice, who thought that they recognized the man in the sketch as their good friend. They were correct. Using fingerprints, Virginia police confirmed the victim was William McGuire from Woodbridge, New Jersey. Melanie was not informed right away how her husband died, but when she was, she said that she fell apart. She could barely stand up, that she was sobbing, that she couldn't imagine what her husband had gone through. So was this a clever performance by a callous woman who killed her husband or the genuine response of a grieving widow? The jury found Melanie guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but to this day, Melanie has maintained her innocence. In this podcast, we conduct an unbiased investigation into Melanie's case, looking at the evidence from the point of view of both the prosecution and the defense. During our investigation, we conducted exclusive interviews with witnesses, independent experts, and over 25 hours with Melanie herself, but we are also asking for help from anyone who may know something about this case. If you do, please email tips at directappealpodcast.com. My name is Megan Sachs. And I'm Amy Sloshberg. And we are your hosts. I'm a criminologist and the program director of the criminology program at Fairleigh Dickinson University. 
I write about various issues in the criminal justice system, including sex offender policies, plea bargaining and bail operations. I teach classes on women in crime, serial killers, probation and parole, and more. And I'm also a professor of criminology at Fairleigh Dickinson University. I do research in the areas of wrongful conviction, education in prison, and offender reentry. I teach classes on the miscarriages of justice, race and crime, and offender reintegration. Yeah, I have to say, Amy actually really teaches all the cool classes. You teach serial killers. Oh, that's right. Nothing's cooler than that. I forgot, actually, I do. And by the way, race and crime has like five people in it because everyone's (laughs) in your serial killer class. I'm sorry, everyone. I forgot. I actually do teach the cooler classes. Seriously. Um, But you can probably see that women in crime actually relates to what we're doing here, right? So I taught on women in crime. And, you know, that was probably the first time I heard Melanie McGuire's name. Not how we got involved in this case, but the first time a student really brought it to my attention and I started looking at female offenders in depth. Yep. So how did you come to be involved in this particular case? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, it was at the request of Melanie that we undertook this investigation, which I'd like to point out is extremely rare. We have the full participation of Melanie, who is convicted and serving her time, but who is also in the appeals process right now. And so her lawyers would advise her not to talk to anyone. Um, It could endanger her her case. And most people in her position do not speak to media or outside sources. So the fact that she, A, wanted to, and B, has fully participated and never went back on it and gave us as much information as I asked for with no exceptions, very, very rare. And she's also aware of the fact that this is an unbiased, objective review yeah. of what went on in her case. I, I actually explained that to her as well. Um, and yeah, when I, get in, when I get into our first meeting, I'll tell you what I told her. But, you know, this kind of happened organically. You know, I started teaching women in crime. I had a couple of students who interned in Edna Mann, which is where Melanie is incarcerated. I do also a lot of work with offenders. I wound up in my capacity of visiting like Rahway Prison making connections with the lifers. Mm -hmm. You know, I invited a lot of them to write for my books. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've written a couple of books just on these topics. And I like to include the narratives of the real people. So I guess my name has been kind of out there in terms of working with offenders. And I get letters on a semi-regular basis from offenders who are either, let's say, um, asking for a contact, asking for help in some capacity, Um, proclaiming their innocence and thinking perhaps we can help them um, make a case. Some people think I'm a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot um, of ambiguity with criminologists. You know, what do they do? Can they help? So I don't know. Do you get these? I mean, I get letters on a regular basis, semi-regular at least. Yes. And I don't know about you, but I feel compelled to write them back even if I cannot help them. And, you know, because we aren't lawyers, there's only so much we could do. Right. Um, I write them back as well. Uh, I will say, Some offenders I write semi-regularly as well because they are, again, people who have worked on my books, Mm -hmm. Um, people who I've worked with on a long-term basis. I've also written to the parole boards on behalf of their work in that capacity. Mm -hmm. So, And Melanie wrote for one of your books, did she not? Melanie did, actually. This um, second book on corrections, Melanie wrote her story, which is called Harmless Error. And that's before we even started working on this podcast. Is that correct? She did. She before we started Mm -hmm. um, recording this, she wrote her story Mm -hmm. and it's featured in the book and it will also be featured on our website and in this podcast can be found on Amazon. And I couldn't couldn't not do that. Sorry. Shameless plug. (laughs) Um, Melanie wrote her story. She was happy to write it. She volunteered to. Again, I think it's another outlet for her. At first, I heard from Melanie's mother. She was the one who initially contacted me and I had a couple of conversations with Melanie's mother, Linda. So I spoke with Melanie's mom. I spoke with her friend and 
then eventually I was invited via her friend um, to visit Melanie at the prison. Um, because you have to remember at first, I really didn't have much of a way to contact Melanie. I wasn't, I didn't write to her initially and you're not on, you have to get on a prison visiting list and you also have to get on a prison phone call list. You mm -hmm. can't just say, oh yeah, have her call me from prison. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. There's a lot of red tape to go through. Mm -hmm. So um, that was initially uh, how I wound up meeting with Melanie. Um, I didn't speak to her. We didn't write. We just had a face-to-face -face meeting for the first time. And that was almost two years ago, by the way. And what was that meeting like? I went to meet her at Edna Mann, which is the only female prison in New Jersey. And it's not exactly what you would think of when you think of a prison. I had been to Edna Mann before with students because of the women in crime class. We had toured, there's kind of two sides to Edna Mann. One of them is the max grounds and the other side is minimum and medium. So the minimum and medium kind of looks to me like a college campus. When you drive on, there's a lot of freedom of movement. They don't mm -hmm. have gates in the minimum and medium, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because when we were walking, I was looking at the, you know, females thinking anyone could basically take off at any time. This was on this was on one of my tours before I actually got to meet Melanie. And but I they are wearing bright orange, so I don't know how far they'd get. They are. Yeah. But I did ask um, a supervisor there. I said, um, what's with the, you know, lack of security? And yeah. What they explained was that the women don't in general try to run from minimum medium because they're serving shorter sentences. And if you get caught for an escape, it's an additional five years oh, yeah. to your sentence. So it's not worth it. And everyone at that prison has to go to that that it's called grounds at Edna Man. Everyone has to go there before they leave. It's like a transitional stop. Right. Right. So it's rather, you know, they have a lot of freedom of movement. I think they have more privileges, a lot of educational classes, and there's deer grazing. And there's puppies. And there's the puppies. Because they have the... Uh, puppies in prison yeah, program. Yeah, the puppies in prison program. Which is actually great. Nothing about it screams prison But to that's you. not where Melanie is. That is not where no. Melanie is. Melanie's on the maximum side. And the maximum side, I would say, definitely looks like a prison. When you get down there, you have to take a bus from the regular grounds or minimum grounds, the security booth down there, um, and you pull up to maximum and you see the high razor fence and their security booths. And you have to go through, you know, you, you pass a few security measures. Um, but when we got in there, I actually was surprised that the meeting was, or the, me the, the visitation was being held in a very open cafeteria. And that's not what I had, uh, that's not what I remembered from some of the men's prisons when did I was working there. Did you picture like the plexiglass in between with the phone? I did, I did. I just, I just didn't think it would be so open. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's just, a fa it also could be, look, I haven't been in the prisoners as, uh, or in the prisons as a probation officer and Mm -hmm. you know, over 10 years. So maybe it's just different now. But Melanie and everyone else was just sort of out there waiting. And so I actually saw her waving to us from across the cafeteria and she started to walk over. And the first thing I was struck by was her small stature and her totally warm smile. So she's waving at you like a friend, someone yep. you've seen before. And it's not what you picture when you when you think of the femme fatale. But, you know, we all have these preconceptions of what a murderer is going to look like. And, you know, I was surprised. I know better than that. But I still thought, here's this tiny, warm looking woman. And she came over and she I was with her friend and she hugged her friend and then she hugged me. And I went, OK, I guess we're doing this. We're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we're hugging. Yeah. OK. The only instruction that we received there is that Melanie and all prisoners are to sit on one side of a table and visitors on the other. And that's it. So there was no other measures of security. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a an officer, maybe two in the room. There was a lot of women and a yeah. lot of people. So 
we sat down at the table and this really began our first meeting and my first introduction to Melanie McGuire in this case. And she just started talking. She was excited that I was there. I think she was excited to see her friend too. I mean, think about it. Prisons, I mean, you know what they look forward to? You know, phone calls, meetings. This is their the outside world coming in. And Melanie had a lot to say. She was excited to get into it, right? So she was covering a lot of ground. I was a little overwhelmed at first uh, because I had nothing to even write with. I wasn't allowed to bring anything in at that point. So I said, okay, let's slow it down just a tiny bit. I also explained to her, and I want to make the audience aware that I told her immediately that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not her advocate. If I decided to take this project on in any way, shape, or form, I would investigate without bias and she may not like what I would conclude. I wanted her to understand that, acknowledge it, and see what she felt about that. And she said she understood. She wanted the truth to come out. There were things that would come out, she said, that would look bad for her, but she was fine with that. She wanted a real investigation into her husband's death, which she feels, you know, she felt was never done. And so began the first step. So you knew before you met her, you knew you were interested in investigating this case? Not Or was really. it at that point that? It was at that point, I think. I didn't know what I was doing. Like, why was I meeting with her? I've met with offenders before to talk about their stories mm -hmm. and usually about what they can do, like outreach work. But this was different. Melanie wanted to talk to someone about her case and... I wasn't sure in what capacity or in role I could help, but I did know, I will say that I did know by the end of this conversation, this is worth looking into. How are we going to do it? I don't know. Well, you did it. Well, we did it, we right? Did it. We did it. Well, luckily, I was able to bring Amy back in, um, even if not in an official visitor capacity. Yeah. Now, quick disclaimer here before we go any further. Regardless of what we find and what our opinions are going forward, we want to be very clear that Bill McGuire is the victim in this case. And that fact is not in dispute whatsoever. So whatever we conclude, Bill is still a victim. We'd like to treat him that way. Um, his family has suffered, as Melanie's has as well. Um, and we just want you to keep that in mind as we go forward. With that being said, I think we need to begin by getting to know a bit about Melanie McGuire. I think the first week I moved into the complex, we became friends. And from there, we moved apart, but we stayed together always. Never, she was never a happy person. She was like mellow. Now, I wouldn't say depressed at all, but I wouldn't say a happy person at all. And always felt like she was a person who can save her friends. Like, so if her friends had issues, Melanie gravitated to help them. Melanie is from a family that she lived with her stepfather and her mother and her brother. Brothers from her stepfather's side. The fact that Melanie had a different name, although she never said, really bothered her that her name was Slate and their name was Caparera. I think she had a lot of conflicts within herself. That's Celine Trevisis. I would say Celine and Allison are probably her closest friends. And Celine is actually going to come to play a pretty integral role in this case in a few different ways. One of them was her maid of honor. Is that correct? That's Celine. Celine. Okay. Yeah, Celine. Definitely, again, a lifelong friend. She helped her. You know, Melanie turned to her. She helped with lawyers. She helped with bail. So let's hear a little bit more about Melanie's personality. This is Linda, Melanie's mom. I don't think she has the ability to do what was done to Bill. I really, truly don't. She's the kind of person, and it has happened, where she's driving down the road on 287, saw a traffic accident, had the boys in the car, pulled her car over to the side of the road. Police weren't there yet. Goes over, helps the woman who's stuck in the car. 
Police come. They don't have a blanket. She takes the blanket out of her car and she's helping this woman. That's the kind of person she is. She's a good girl. She's she's doing it in prison. She's helping. She just last week she dressed somebody's foot. The girl had had a um, an operation on her toe and they didn't give her any antibiotics and they didn't do anything. And my daughter took her foot and soaked it and cleaned it. And and this is the way she is. This is the kind of person she is. Melanie thinks she can fix everything to fix her. She is a very caring and loving person. She comes on strong. She has a strong personality, but she was a very, very compassionate nurse. I have numerous, numerous letters that I've kept and cards from people. You and I both met Linda and her father, so Linda and Michael Caparero. It does seem a little striking to me. It it sounded like the picture her mother painted is a bit different than Celine. After the mother was talking, I did not get the impression that Melanie was depressed or despondent the way Celine, but you know, it just, it just occurred to me at this moment that it seemed that they were talking about two different people almost. Did you get that at all? Right. Yeah. I thought what Celine said about her um, not seeming that happy was not consistent with what I either observed or after our interviews, after the interview with Linda, with Michael, with Melanie. But it's possible, you know, as a young child, too, they met when they were really young and yeah. it's possible there were some other issues again. You know, Who her, was happy as a teenager? Right? <laughs> I was. <laughs> but OK, fine. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely possible that there are some issues there. I think there there had to be something again. You know, as Celine said, Melanie was probably unhappy. They had two different names, you know. So the gentleman that we met is actually Melanie's stepfather. Michael Caparero is Melanie's stepfather. But for all purposes, Melanie regards him as her father. And where's her actual father? Or when was he when did he leave the picture? When Melanie was four years old. Okay. And I, I don't think Melanie had any contact with him. I think she explained that at one time she maybe spoke with him or visited him one time after that. Got it. So Michael... The gentleman that we met with, along with her mother, is, like you said, a father figure yes, in her life. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And as Celine was describing it, maybe it was a little rough in the beginning. Um, but I, I do know that Melanie has told me, too, that she has a very good relationship with him and she has for a very long time. And if I recall, Linda did say that this destroyed him, that he was um, such a, um, I forget how she put it, but he has worked or I guess advocated so hard for Melanie's innocence and he's sort of been um, beat down by it a bit. Uh, I think so. I think we probably, we probably both observed that he was. Um, To me, he definitely seemed it. I think that Linda, I mean, Linda still seemed okay. Um, But yeah, I think it really wore on him. There was a lot of things that happened that I think in the course of this, remember, they were also the subject of this investigation. It was alleged, and we'll talk about it later, um, that he might have been her accomplice in this crime. So, you know, their homes were searched. They they spent all of their money. I mean, I think they're beat down as well. Yeah, I think it was really, really, really hard on them as well. So one of the things, though, that Linda has said, and we saw this, or I saw this, heard about this in the trial. So Melanie had, I mean, the descriptions of her from patients and from other people are she is, again, compassionate, kind. Um, I never would have gotten through this without her. Uh, the descriptions of her are not of a cold-blooded you know, killer, not of a monster, but of a kind, caring, helpful, 
person. Uh, that's what we heard from her mother as well. What did you think? We met, uh, you came on the interview with me with Linda and Mike. What did you think of, uh, what What are your impressions of Linda well, and I Mike? I loved Linda, you know that. Me and Linda, you know, <laughs> we hit it off right away. Um, Linda lived in the same town I lived in, um, you know, so we were talking a little bit about what's still there, what has changed about the area. She could have been, you know, any of my friend's mothers that I could sit down with. Um, I was surprised at how upbeat she was given the circumstance. She had a very, um, she just seemed very optimistic that the truth would come out. And to her, the truth was that Melanie is innocent. She did. It's interesting you say that. She seems that way. And so does Melanie. They are not I don't know if it's complete optimism, but they don't let this, they're certainly not feeling sorry, either one of them feeling sorry for themselves. So, Which I couldn't imagine if I were actually innocent and in that situation, I can't imagine I would still, after all these years, still feel optimistic. But maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's happened because you started looking into the case. Or maybe it's all they have. Yeah. You know, maybe it's the hope, you know what I mean? The hope keeps them going. So, you know, Linda told us and Selena have given us about Melanie's background. One of the things that or one of the themes that's going to come up again and again with Melanie is going to be one of her, I guess you would say her weaknesses. Uh, Let's hear a clip. She's strong in certain ways and very weak in other ways. And her weaknesses are men. Melanie's relationships were always anyone who liked her. There was no criteria with Melanie when it came to to boys. Very, very low self-esteem when it came to that part of Melanie. And it showed with many of the guys, and a lot of the guys that she met took advantage of her, and she was fine with it. And I saw her is that she didn't think much of herself, basically. So if anybody liked her, then that was was fair game. Um, She wasn't the most faithful faithful person, because if anybody liked her, she she was fine with that. That's a little harsh. Ouch. Right? From coming from a best friend, right? Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was a bit harsh as well. Honest. Yes, Possibly honest. Possibly. So now we're painting a picture of someone with very low self-esteem who just likes whoever likes her. I guess so. So, I mean, obviously, we we don't know her as a child. I think we got the impression from Lyndon Selene, there's always a boyfriend. Melanie has always had a boyfriend. And I think that held true from young age all the way through the and, course of this. You know, we all know people like that. That doesn't necessarily indicate an issue or problematic behavior, I don't think. Well, I think they're saying it did, right? Um, if it's, a, you know, an issue of low self-esteem and then this is how she's picking boyfriends. Yeah. And, you know, if it's also, I think Celine said it and we'll bring it up later. But I think fidelity is an issue in these relationships as well. So how problematic it is, I don't know. but. Yeah, ouch. It's <laughs> not one of my best friends talking about, right? Me that way, but okay. Um, but but that is a reality here that we have to deal with is that Melanie had steady boyfriends for a long time and before she met Bill. So what I know about Melanie, and she's going to, we're going to get into a clip again in a minute because Melanie's going to tell us how she met Bill. Uh, she was in another relationship and Bill was in another relationship, both of them. So this is... Did they have an open marriage or this was more... No, actually, let's play the clip so you can okay. hear it, okay? It was the summer between junior and senior year in college, 1993, which it occurs to me as I'm saying that is 25 years ago. Wow. I got a job that summer at a restaurant called Bay Street. And I met Bill. He was working there at the time. He was dating a woman called Kathy. Uh, he was separated from his first wife at the time. He and I did not really get along well in the beginning. We didn't have like outright animosity, but we just, we didn't care for one another. 
he basically told me later on that he thought I had an attitude and that I was an intellectual snob. He definitely had an attitude, no question about that. I was aware that he was separated from his wife and that he was having issues with her. I had heard about him going back and forth to Atlantic City, sometimes with people from work, sometimes without. You know, I I didn't pay a lot of attention to it because he wasn't really on my, my radar. I do remember a time when Apparently, his wife had either canceled the credit cards or the car insurance or something, something that basically came back and uh, caused him to, to blow up quite a bit when he had come back to work one day. Ultimately, he got fired from Bay Street, and he still did continue to hang out with all of us as a group, though. So even though he and I kind of kept our distance, I was invited to his girlfriend's birthday party. And I figured I liked her very much. And I had baked her a cake. I guess when I brought that over there and the fact that I was kind of warm and open with her, that warmed him up after he looked at me in a different light. He had thought I was such a snob. And, you know, the fact that I went out of my way, made a cake for her. I mean, it was like bygones at that point. Everybody was you know, okay, because in talking to him, he wasn't as standoffish with me. He didn't have the attitude with me that he had had previously either. Now, Bill had gotten fired, but again, like I said, he was still hanging out with everybody, and Bill and Brian had decided, along with another guy, to move in together and get a place. And uh, eventually, school year rolls around, uh, Kathy left for school out in California. I was pretty much at the house, I don't want to say all the time I wasn't living there, but I was there frequently, and Brian would, you know, call me and say, okay, um, my shift's getting ready to be over, you want to meet me at the house, I'd drive over there. But a lot of times, Brian ended up staying out or staying there and drinking afterwards. So Bill and I ended up inadvertently kind of spending more and more time together, and ultimately that's how our relationship began. Brian found out that, uh, needless to say, did not go well. One of my many not-so-fine romantic moments in life. Uh, by the time that all occurred, we're talking like, uh, it's like November of, of 93. Okay. I know uh, there's a, a lot to unpack here. <laughs> yeah. One quick question. Okay. So I'm not sure if I'm correct here. So she was with Brian and she cheated on Brian with Bill. Correct. Okay. Bill was still married to his first wife, Marcy, but they were separated. Marcy, I thought it was someone else. Well, that's because she said Kathy. Kathy was his girlfriend. Oh, he was married and had a girlfriend. Yes. And it, she did on both of them with Melanie. Basically, <laughs> okay. yes. Yes. In, in fairness, again, he and Marcy were separated at the time, um, but he was dating Kathy and Melanie was dating Brian and Brian and Bill lived together at some point. And then... Melanie was also friends with Kathy, as you probably realize. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, they got together. And so from the start, I think what we're seeing here is they're both getting together off of infidelity. Mm -hmm. So the foundation, you know, for me, the foundation, this is going to be tough. Yeah. Right. I mean, how, how are you going to start off by coming from, you know, being with other people and being with each other. This is Celine. The best boyfriend she had, she left for Bill. Bill was more attractive, more manly than Brian. So it was very easy for her to do the switch. You know, it's funny because she dated Bill, I want to say maybe two or three years before I even met him. I never even met him. Me and Melanie always went out, just me and Melanie. Never thought much of him since the first day I met him. Thought he was a bit condescending to Melanie. 
it also strikes me that Celine and Melanie are best friends and she did not meet Bill until two to three years into the relationship. I thought that was odd, too. I, I did think that was odd as well. Is that because Bill didn't take interest in Melanie's friends or Melanie was embarrassed of him? You know, it could kind of go either way. Uh, Celine said her impression was, again, that she wasn't that fond of Bill. Linda and Mike, I, I think if you remember, we discussed with them also, and they talked about not being super fond of Bill at first either. Uh, I think we have a clip from Linda. She discusses, uh, some, you know, a couple of incidents that happened that just sort of rubbed her the wrong way. So we met Bill. Bill would call our house. And we had a rule in our house. You don't call on the house phone. She has her own line, her own phone. Rule. So anyway, ring, ring, ring. The phone rings. She doesn't answer. She's downstairs. House phone rings. And it's Bill. And he says, uh, can I speak to Melanie? And Michael said, what did you say? No. I'm sorry. She has her own phone. It's dinner time. And she'll call you back. Well, I think you're controlling. You're too controlling of your daughter. At which time my husband said, well, I think you're an a-hole and hung up. Not on a good end. Tell you the truth, she continued to see him, but he never came to our house. So she would work up there and stay with him and blah, 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 whatever it was. So then, And one time they did break up. And I have to say, I was really happy. So, I mean, that's probably not the way to win over your girlfriend's parents is to start off by telling, you know, her dad that he's too controlling. Yeah. So I don't think that set a great tone with them. Yeah, I don't believe so. (laughs) No. And but it did seem that he, you know, he didn't come over often or interact. And maybe that's, you know, that seems to be a thing, too. It's just Celine didn't meet him and he didn't come over. and, And maybe there was a reason. Maybe, you know, Melanie didn't think he would do well with them or maybe... She just thought it was better off if they spent their own time alone. Or maybe he did not take an interest in what was going on in her life. That's actually true, too. Um, You know, we really don't know. And uh, we could speculate, but nothing we say would be, you know, the truth here. So Bill and Melanie are dating. They are, you know, by Melanie's account, happy. Although they do have signs early of a sort of a volatile or tumultuous relationship. But I think they were that kind of like that crazy about each other, right? Yeah. But at this point... um, Bill and Kathy have broken up. She has left. Melanie will tell you she left and she went to school somewhere. But Bill is still married to Marcy. And Melanie says that Marcy actually confronts her. So let's hear what happens. I had gone one day to work and I got out of my car to go into the restaurant and Marcy, this is Bill's ex-wife, had pulled in behind me and she said she wanted to talk to me and could I meet her at the diner down the street after my shift. And I didn't know what to make of this. I assumed at this point that she was going to come at me aggressively or tell me to leave her husband alone or, you know, something of the sort. But I figured, you know what, let, let me just... Let me just go. I don't know what made me. But in sitting down talking to her, Bill had been trying to contact her and he was trying to get back with her. She had gotten a temporary restraining order against him because at one point he had thrown a bottle through her bedroom window. Now, at this point, she's telling me these things and we decided to go and confront him together because she said, well, he's still with you. I said, well, he's still with me. And I said, he's trying to get with you. He's trying to get with me. We decided we would go over there and confront him uh, together. Needless to say, that was uh, a little explosive. 
But after lots of yelling and screaming, um, accusing, pushing, he had pushed her at one point. I did see it, but she was really kind of going at him. So in my mind, I'm telling myself, well, she was physically lunging at him. It's not like he hit her. He was just kind of pushing her back. But nonetheless... She sat in my car afterwards, and she said that she was done. That was it. She had had it, and that I could go back in there if I wanted to, but she warned me against it. She told me that ultimately he would make me think that I was crazy, that he would end up more or less controlling my life, and that I would basically, I would see, I would would learn the hard way if I chose to go back in. I said, well, he tells me he loves my independence. He loves my intellect. He loves, you know, and she just kind of smiled and shook her head no. And she said, he'll, he'll chip away at that. And I remember thinking, that's you. That's not me. That's not me at all. And I, it's so strange. I remember her looking down at my nails, which I had just had done like a day or two before. And she said, he lets you get them done. And I'm looking at her thinking, like, she's out of her mind. What the hell are you talking about? Let's me get them done. Nobody lets me get anything done. So she got out of the car and went on with her life. And he and I somehow pieced this back together for what would be the first of, of many times. He was sorry. He just wanted to make sure his marriage was over. He said all the right things. And, and it was my choice. And I chose to, to believe him. Life went on. And. And we stayed together. So that's what happened with Bill's ex-wife, Marcy. You would think that would have been a red flag for Melanie. I think it was later. I think at the time, like she had said, I think she thought, okay, well, they were married and maybe he just wanted to make sure it was over. This was his wife. And I think she was able to rationalize it at the time, right? And and maybe in fairness to Bill, maybe that was exactly what it was. You know, it's a major decision and, and whatnot. But. Again, this is the beginning of their relationship. And so far we have, you know... The, not the honeymoon phase that you would normally expect. You know, it's, 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 not, a, it's not the strongest sign. It's not a strong foundation on which they're, they're building their relationship. So what happens in a relationship where the foundation has so many cracks? What are the odds that their house will stand? Next time on Direct Appeal, we will put the spotlight on Melanie and Bill's relationship. We'll look at the ups, we'll look at the downs, the affairs and the fight where Melanie said she should have left. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Barry Janae provided legal research and advised on various points in the making of this podcast. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.